Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you because it is a lamp unto our feet, showing us the way to heaven, showing us the way to Jesus. And we thank you again for the opportunity that you give us to open your word. May we hear your voice. May we put into practice those things that we learned tonight. We thank you for Pastor Anderson. We thank you for Sandy. We thank you for them being here with us tonight. And we ask your blessing upon all of us who are here. Because we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Good evening, everyone. Happy Sabbath. What a beautiful way to open the Sabbath, to open the book. So I thank you for coming tonight. Fallbrook is a special place for, for me and, of course, for Sandy. This was her home church for a dozen years or so. And it's a truly a blessing for us to be able to visit back with you and, and share from the Bible, God's Word. So that's what we're going to do uh, tonight. We're going to be talking about the drying up of the Euphrates. Our topic is on Armageddon, the who, why, what, and where of Armageddon. That's a topic that's on a lot of people's minds, but I suspect that a lot of people have, a, have an approach that is not the way God would want us to see it. And uh, we're going to explore that tonight, tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon, and the textbook is going to be the Word. So I hope that you brought your Bible tonight. Uh, if you didn't, uh, when you go home tonight, have a talk with it and see if you can't persuade it to be with you tomorrow. There might be one in the pew with you uh, there too that you can borrow, but we're going to be looking at a lot of Bible texts. And they're going to be on the screen, sometimes the text itself, sometimes the reference. Uh, and I would say that, that uh, if anybody would like, I'd be happy to share the file of the PowerPoint. I can ma- email that to you if that is uh, something that you would like. Just give me your email address and I'll forward that on. And then you have the text in, in that form, if you wish. When I was uh, converted, you know, I went to San Diego Academy, like some others I see here. Uh, and, but I was not really a converted Christian until my senior year of academy. But when that happened, there was a song that uh, seemed to be uh, uh, popular at that time, written by, by a band by the name of Roy Pendleton. And the, the song, I, it's been in my mind this week, especially thinking about our series. The, the first verse of it, maybe some of you might remember this song. The theme of the Bible is Jesus and how he died to save men. The plan of salvation assures us that he's coming back again. Anybody remember that song? It was a favorite back in the 60s, and uh, I remember the King's Heralds and many other quartets singing it. And as I thought about the, the, that first verse especially, that's exactly what we're doing here. The theme of the Bible is Jesus. The way that so many people look at Armageddon and understand uh, what they're taught about what Armageddon is about misses that focus. The way we want to look at the, at the story of Armageddon is one that puts Jesus in the center. Because he is the theme, not just of the Bible, but especially of the book of Revelation, right? That's what the first verse says. The revelation of, not St. John the Divine, that's not what the text says. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And we want to be able to study this topic of Armageddon in a way that puts Jesus at the forefront and makes him the star, the center. And I don't think that's very difficult if you just study it, uh, comparing Scripture with Scripture. So that's going to be the uh, topic that we're studying. And if you have your Bible open, or you can see it on the screen there, the 12th verse of Revelation 16 is what we're going to be studying tonight and tomorrow for church. 
In the afternoon, we're going to take a look at uh, verses 13 through 16. But verse 12 is so rich, the words are so bursting with meaning that uh, it'll take us tonight and tomorrow morning to, to go through that. But here's what verse 12 says. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Its water was dried up so that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Nearly every single one of those words is a Bible study or a sermon in itself. My objective, my prayer, is that by the time we have our series concluded, that, that the, the real picture of what this verse is describing will be so clear to you that, that it'll be unmistakable. Every single person, young and old, I'm really praying, will be able to say, I know what that's talking about. I get it. I see it. And when we compare Scripture with Scripture, I think that uh, that, that will come through. So tonight, here's our outline. We're going to take a look at uh, some introductory things, a little bit of an overview. We're going to take a look at the time context of when this Armageddon episode takes place. And then we're going to focus most of our time talking about what is it about this waters of the Euphrates being dried up? What is that telling us? So that's our, our outline. Now, thinking about uh, the introduction and the overview of the topic, uh, something that I think we need to be reminded of is that as Seventh-day Adventists, as Bible Christians, we have what we might call the great controversy theme. And what, what that is saying is that we understand the Bible, the motif, the overall framework to, to uh, be set in this war that began in heaven between Lucifer and Christ and was transferred down to this earth and will reach its conclusion, we believe, someday soon. Do you believe that, by the way? Do you believe we're living in the days when this is going to be wrapped up? I surely do. So we have the, the great controversy theme. When we study Armageddon then, we're looking for an interpretation that matches up with that motif, that fits into that model, that framework. And again, it's not difficult to do that. We're going to be studying uh, whether, this, whether these terms are to be taken literally or symbolically. And that's a watershed question. Uh, we'll take a little brief look at the history of the interpretation as it pertains to Seventh-day Adventists. How has our church looked at these verses here in Revelation 16, 12 to 16? And then I have a little bit of an assignment for you. We're actually going to incorporate some of the paragraphs in our study tonight. But if you really want to know what the Battle of Armageddon is about, if you read from Great Controversy, pages 627 through 636, and ask yourself, what is this presenting? What is, what is Sister White describing here? And uh, we'll, we'll say a little bit more of that as we go on. So that's the overview that we want to take. The Bible presents a great conflict between Christ and Satan. It began in heaven, and that is the predominant theme of the Bible. And it talks about the battle, the uh, warfare. And the word battle in the New Testament is a word that has come into our language. The word in the original is polemos. And we have the word polemic in our vocabulary. What is a polemic? Is it a war having to do with swords and guns and grenades and bullets? Or more often is the word polemic used to describe a war of ideas and principles and concepts? That's what the type of war is that the Bible is describing when it describes the battle of Armageddon. I think I went one. Uh, the Bible describes... This battle, very clearly, if you look at the text in Revelation, as a battle that takes place between the armies of heaven and the armies of earth. I know that the, the uh, popular way of looking at this uh, topic, the Battle of Armageddon, uh, pits the armies of the east, Asia, 
China, Japan, whatever, against the armies of the West, and they all congregate together there in Palestine, and, and uh, that's what the battle is about. I strongly disagree with that way of looking at it. We're going to see uh, from the Bible right now that the battle is between the forces of Babylon worldwide and the forces of heaven. Let's take a look at some of these verses now. In our topic itself, we are drawn to that conclusion. It says, verse 14, they are the spirits of demons performing signs. They go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world. So this is a global thing to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And then in chapter 17, remember in the Bible, there were no chapter divisions originally. There weren't any verses either. It was just one narrative, one seamless discussion. So uh, the fact that something is in chapter 16 and then we look at chapter 17, don't think that that represents necessarily a change of thought or anything. It's, it, it's uh, continuing in the discussion. So in the very next chapter, uh, we read about they, and it's representing the forces of Babylon. That's what chapter 17 is about. They will make war with the Lamb. It's not China or Russia against America. It's a war having to do with the forces of Babylon and the forces of the Lamb, Jesus. The Lamb will overcome them. Now, if you think back in Revelation 13, the question was asked, who will make war with the beast? Who can stand up to the beast? The answer is given here in chapter 17. The Lamb will overcome them. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And then we have in uh, chapter 19, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. He who sat on him was called faithful and true in righteousness. He judges and does what? Makes war. Now in chapter 14 of Revelation, the second coming of Jesus is presented in the, in the uh, descriptive model of him being the, the farmer, the heavenly husbandman. He is coming to reap. The harvest is now ripe and he's coming as a reaper. He has a sickle in his hand. That's chapter 14. In chapter 19, he's not coming as the harvester. It's just a change, different expression, but he's described as the military general coming to, to uh, bring conquest. So with that in mind, it says that he judges and makes war. Jesus is the rider on the white horse, right? But he's not alone. The armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So the battle is not between the forces of Asia against the forces of America. If you read the Bible, the book of Revelation, clearly the battle is between the forces of Babylon, combining with the kings of the earth that, uh, that are in association there, fighting against the lamb, the one who rides on the white horse. Verse 19 of that chapter says, I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. I don't know if clear language could be found. I think... Uh, well, a lot of people don't read the Bible. That's what it is. And they just trust what the tabloid says about the battle of Armageddon or what their pastor or teacher or what they read in a book, and they don't go to the Word. But if we, when you go to the Word, it's very clear. The battle is not between, you know, Russia and the United States. The battle is between the forces of Babylon, and that's located around the world, against the one who rides on the white horse. That's Jesus and his army. So uh, it is a global event, not something limited to one small territory. And we'll get into what that, why it's called Armageddon uh, tomorrow afternoon. But it is the last segment of that battle that began in heaven. Armageddon has two phases, we'll see. The, coming, the phase that pertains to the second coming of Jesus and the part that pertains to the third coming of Jesus. Both can be looked at as part of the great battle that will come. 
What's the problem of looking at it in a, in a literal way? Does it make any difference? So what? The literal way of looking at this battle being between China and the United States or whatever misses what the big issue is. And the issue has to do with loyalty to God, His kingdom, His government, and His law. That has been the issue from the very beginning in heaven when Lucifer began his challenge. It was the issue in the Garden of Eden. It will be the issue in the days just before Jesus comes back to this earth. God has every right to ask the question, will you be a loyal citizen of my kingdom? And that's expressed by freely offered obedience given in love. And that's the issue of what Armageddon is about. Can he trust us to take us to heaven so that we'll be loyal to him? That's what Armageddon is about. And the literal interpretation doesn't, doesn't recognize that uh, part of it. I think I went too fast there. Very sensitive. I'm going to have to be very careful of this. Uh, think a little bit about the history of our church looking at this. And I brought with me tonight uh, Uriah Smith's thoughts on Daniel and Revelation. Good book. Very good book. Uh, Sister White had nice words to say about what Uriah Smith did. However, we'll differ a little bit regarding his interpretation. When um, our pioneers started out, there were two, two lines of thought that were uh, embraced and taught. James White favored a more spiritual look at what Armageddon was about, like we've been talking about, battle between Christ and his armies and the forces of Babylon. Uriah Smith saw it a little bit different, and uh, he, he talked about some things in a symbolic way, but other things in a more literalistic way. And he saw the Ottoman Empire uh, being the, the focus of what was going to be diminished by the drying up of the Euphrates. Well, these two ideas were taught, and of course, James White was editor of a magazine. What was that? Signs of the Times. And Uriah Smith was editor of a magazine. What was that? I know I'm testing your memory here a little bit. That would be the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald. And so for a while, they, they kind of had the salvos going back and forth, uh, championing the view that they embraced. And, and Sister White says, we can't have that. That's not good. We need to present a unified front. And so James White obediently um, uh, stopped writing articles about it. Uh, and so for a while, Uriah Smith's view was the predominant one in the Adventist church. But then uh, a number of years ago, maybe 70 years ago, maybe back in the 1950s or so, uh, the tide began to shift toward a more spiritual, symbolic way of interpreting these things. And one, I don't know if any of you have uh, heard of this man's name, Louis Weir. Anybody heard of Louis Weir? see quite a few hands. Uh, I'm hoping to meet that man someday. I, I believe he's passed to his rest now. But uh, I was so entranced by his writings. If you have any of his books, uh, you're, you are truly blessed. Kings that come from the sun rising, the certainty of the third angel's message, and other. You can look them up online uh, and obtain them, perhaps. Louis Weir, a real Bible student, and uh, did excellent. And I'm in, indebted to uh, his uh, approach in many ways. So that uh, is the way that uh, more Adventists look at the, uh, what's being taught here in Revelation 16 today. Now, I mentioned something about this assignment. If you read Great Controversy uh, sometime this weekend, those pages, uh, do this. Ask yourself, you know that uh, uh, Revelation 16 is talking about the plagues. We'll address that in a second or more particularly, but Revelation 16 is talking about the plagues. So when you read these pages from Great Controversy, ask yourself, where do I find the first plague? Where do I find the second plague, the third plague, the fourth plague? Where, where is the... Where does she talk about the, the heat that uh, uh, 
you know, oppresses the earth and the fourth plague and so on. And just continue on that. Where, where, are the, where is the sixth plague? Where is the battle of Armageddon? Where is the seventh plague? But if you read those pages with, with that thought in mind, I think you'll, you'll find some interesting things to ponder because she really doesn't, I don't see the word Armageddon in that narrative at all. And yet I believe she's talking about it. I believe she describes it very accurately. Now, these are a few paragraphs from that section that I'm going to read. When the protection of human laws shall be withdrawn from those who honor the law of God, there will be in different lands a simultaneous movement for their destruction. As the time appointed in the decree draws near, the people will conspire to root out the hated sect. It will be, one determined, it will be determined to strike one, in one night a decisive blow which shall utterly silence the voice of dissent and reproof. The people of God, some in prison cells, some in hidden solitary retreats in the forests and the mountains, still plead for divine protection, while in every quarter, companies of armed men, this is the important part of this description I want to focus on, companies of armed men, urged on by hosts of evil angels, are preparing for the work of death. It is now in the hour of utmost extremity that the Israel of God will, that the God of Israel will interpose for the deliverance of his chosen. With shouts of triumph, jeering, and imprecation, throngs of evil men are about to rush upon their prey. If you could just file that one little phrase in your mind. Throngs of evil men are about to rush upon their prey. When lo, a dense blackness deeper than the darkness of the night falls and they are arrested. Their mocking, mocking cries die away. The objects of their murderous rage are forgotten. With fearful forebodings, they gaze upon the symbol of God's covenant and long to be shielded from its overpowering brightness. That's one passage from that section of Great Controversy. In those paragraphs, I truly believe that Sister White has described what verse 12 is trying to say. Verse 12 of chapter 16, she has put into modern-day language. What does it say again? The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. I believe we just read in Great Controversy what that means. Throngs of evil men are about to rush upon their prey when suddenly the glory of Christ is revealed and they are stopped. They are arrested. The waters are dried up and the way of the kings of the east is prepared. So what is the time context of these, of these verses then? It occurs during the, the sixth plague. And when, when do we know, what do we know about uh, when the plagues fall? The plagues come after probation has closed, okay? The Bible says in Revelation 15 that uh, uh, no one was able to enter the temple during the time of the, of the plagues. And of course, the purpose of the temple was for obtaining forgiveness. So if the temple is now closed and, and sealed off, then that means that there's no more opportunity for people to choose salvation. The door has been closed. The ark has been sealed, going back to the story of the flood. So that's when the seven last plagues occur, after the close of probation. And in the seventh plague, which begins in Revelation 16, verse 17, we find a number of phrases that indicate to us that, verse, uh, that the seventh plague really is the second coming of Jesus. And I will toss this out, that the sixth plague involves the coming of Christ. The sixth, the sixth plague is involving the coming of Christ, the seventh plague is the coming of Jesus. Now, I know a question might be in your mind. Coming of Jesus and plagues, how does, that, how does that match up? Well, go back to the story of the Exodus. The plagues are what brought Israel out of Egypt. 
right? They were the catalyst that brought redemption. And Jesus coming, while it may be a plague to those that are, are not ready, it is salvation for those that are. So when we say the seventh, thing, the seventh plague is the coming of Jesus, get the right perspective on that. It's salvation for those that have put their trust in Him. So you have those phrases in the seventh plague that tell you that it's all over by that time. It is done. There's a great earthquake. I'll be interested to see what the seismic effect of that will be. You know, have we, have, have we ever had one that's more than 10? There have been a number of nines, but I, I think this one's going to go right off the charts when that happens. Because every building, all these beautiful skyscrapers to the glory of man, what's going to happen? They're going to come down. Sad to say. And then it says in Revelation 16 that Babylon is remembered. What, in the Bible, when it says God remembers, does that mean that he forgot? Is, does he have memory lapses like me? I can't remember? No. God's memory is perfect. So what does it mean when it says he remembered? It means that he takes action. If you do a little Bible study and go through, there are plenty of evidences uh, where that phrase is used, where God remembered, and translate that in your mind to say God did something. God took action. And that's what's happening here. God has borne long with evil, but now he's going to do something. And that's in the seventh plague. So that's the time context. So here we have verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Its water was dried up. The way of the kings of the east might be prepared. So let's take a look at this matter of the waters of the Euphrates being dried up. Boy, I hit that and it just goes two times. Now, the book of Revelation has 404 verses. And somebody that has studied this has said that at least 250, I've heard sometimes the number 275, but a large proportion, maybe up to two-thirds of the verses, contain either quotes or references or allusions to Old Testament stories and events. We have to have that concept in our mind. You cannot understand the New Testament, you cannot understand the book of Revelation unless you're acquainted with the Old Testament. And that's one, been one of the devil's prime uh, attacks and... and uh, uh, methods to get people to think that the Old Testament is passe and irrelevant and, and not applicable and worthless. And they miss out on the rich treasure of information that's needed to interpret what the New Testament, particularly the book of Revelation, is talking about. So we're going to be doing a lot of looking at texts in the Old Testament because that is the resource that's going to help us understand. In fact, you can think of the book of Revelation like a collage. What's a collage? That's a grouping together of pictures. You have one of those in your house uh, where you have different uh, photographic scenes that are kind of put together with a, under a common theme? Well, that's, that's what the book of Revelation does. It takes all the stories, all the pictures, all the threads of the Old Testament and weaves them together into a pattern. But if you don't know the Old Testament, you'll miss out on the beauty. And the, and the theme is Jesus conquering, the victory of Jesus. The theme of the Bible is Jesus and how he died to save man. That song's in my, in my head. And the battle of Armageddon, correctly understood, brings that picture into sharp focus. That's the beauty of it. That's why I want to study it. Seeing from Armageddon from this point emphasizes Jesus as the star of the book, which is his rightful place. He's even, that name is even used uh, in regard to him. And, of course, it involves the great issues that face planet Earth at the end. Now, um, we find that the Lord when he was here, often spoke in a way that was not 
literal, but more figurative. He spoke some 40, what we call parables. What's a parable? It's a story with a moral purpose. And by the way, most of those parables uh, were actual events that he, he told in story form. But anyway, he told many parables, like the sower. But a parable requires interpretation. And the, the disciples uh, found that a little bit hard to, to, to grasp. And so they asked this question, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said, because it has been, been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. When the Bible uses the word mystery, it means something that can be known, but only by divine re revelation. It's not something that can never be known, but the only way it can be known is by divine revelation, to have our minds in tune with the Holy Spirit. It has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The Lord is looking for those who are serious about salvation. The casual student, the superficial, superficial student is going to miss out. The one who digs earnestly is going to discover truth. And so Jesus said, I told him in parables, uh, in the book of Revelation, what does is, what is the very first verse tell us there in the book of Revelation? Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants, things that must shortly take the place. Is the book of Revelation going to be understood properly by anyone who is not serving God? No, not according to this verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants. So my relationship with God plays an important role in understanding truth. And Daniel emphasizes that. None of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Do a Bible study on what, what it means to be wise in God's eyes, and you'll know what that's talking about. Now, in the study of these uh, terms, we, we find them used in a symbolic or figurative way. And sometimes we'll use the word type, and the counterpart is anti-type. It just means that there's something that uh, a person or event that happened from which a spiritual lesson is drawn. That's the idea. We, think, we can think of many that would fit that, fit that uh, parameter, but, we, but think of Isaac. He was a type or an illustration, a prefigurement of Jesus. Isaac was a son of promise. It required a special birth in order for Isaac to be born. Isaac was taken to Mount Moriah to be sacrificed. Thank God it, didn't, it was stopped, but I mean, you, the picture was there. Well, in all of these things, he was an illustration of Jesus. He was a type. Christ, of course, is the great anti-type. So when we look at the book of Revelation, we're going to be finding ourselves drawn into that uh, method of interpretation. Yes, it's true we take the Bible just as it reads. That's true. But there are times when we're compelled to look at it in a symbolic or figurative way. And one thing that jumps out right, at, uh, right off the top is that uh, the, the um, opponent force in the book of Revelation is Babylon. Well, when John wrote this, there was no Babylon, literally. That had long been destroyed by, uh, by, by the forces of Alexander and others. But um, we do take the Bible just as it reads, but we have to recognize that there are going to be times when we are forced, compelled to look at it in a figurative, a symbolic, a typological way. Now, when Jesus was on earth, especially in the book of John, this is true, uh, there were many things that he said that were not understood by those that listened to him, sometimes the disciples themselves. Uh, in John chapter 2, you have the story where he made a statement, he said, destroy this temple, 
and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews were completely confused about what he was talking about. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to, you're going to destroy it and raise it up in three days? They missed the point. And John, in chapter 2 there, uh, adds, the, adds the interpretation of that. He, later, they figured out. He wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his body that they would destroy, but that would come back to life after three days. In the very next chapter, he's talking with Nicodemus, and he's talking about being born again. Who is Nicodemus? He was the top scholar in the nation, the teacher. And yet, did he understand what Jesus said when he said, you must be born again? How can that be? Do I have to somehow enter my mother's womb again? He didn't understand. Jesus was talking on a different level, a figurative, symbolic way. And he was stuck in the mire of being overly literalistic. The interpretation of Armageddon that puts the forces of Asia against the forces of the West is in that same mire. They're stuck in an overly literalistic approach and missing what the the beauty of the message is. Now, it's interesting in chapter 3 of John, Jesus is talking to a Jewish man uh, who who is a scholar and highly trained, Nicodemus. In chapter 4, he's talking to a Samaritan woman who is probably never gone to school, right? And I find that an interesting thing because there were no fences, no boundaries to whoever Jesus would witness to, right? It could be the Jewish man. It could be the Samaritan woman. They were all candidates for salvation as far as Jesus was concerned. We need to have that same attitude too, don't we? So he's talking to the woman at the well, and he says, you know, I can give you water uh, that will be living water. And she's confused. What are you talking about? Uh, uh, And she goes off on another tangent. In chapter 6, again, Jesus is talking on this other level. He says, I am the true manna. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Do they understand it? No. Read the sixth chapter of John. They, They didn't get it at first anyway. So we have to be, our minds have to be open to say, should we take this in a literal or symbolic way? And if we are compelled by the context or by other features, then we have to be open to looking at it in that way. And when we do that, there are two things that I would propose to you are very helpful. To look at the term in, uh, as far as what its background root meaning, its etymology is. What is that word, where does that word come from? That's going to play a particularly important role when we take a look at the word Armageddon. But we're going to take a look at the meaning of the word, and then we're going to take a look at the role that that person or event played in Israel's past. With those two ideas in mind, uh, the window of understanding will be open. Now, we have lots of illustrations of this in the book of Revelation itself. In the letter to the church at Thyatira, Jesus has some words to say about uh, to Jezebel. Uh, but would we understand that there was a, literally a lady named Jezebel uh, during, during that time period that he was talking about? Or was there somebody that was doing the same thing as Jezebel in ancient times was doing? You see the concept? And if you read you know, Revelation 2, I have to have it open right in front of me, uh, it tells you she's a prophetess, she's teaching uh, error and beguiling uh, God's people to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols and so on. Well, that's what Jezebel was doing during the time of Elijah. There must have been somebody that was doing the same thing, and so the title of Jezebel was put on them, not that that was their real name, but they were occupying the same role. You remember that, that Jesus said concerning John the Baptist, he is... Elijah. Not literally, but he was doing the same thing as Elijah was. So that's the way the Bible approaches these things. In the fifth trumpet, which we understand to be expressing the rise of Islam, it talks about 
uh, violent kings named Abaddon and Apollyon? Would we look in history to find uh, an Islamic king with those names? We probably wouldn't find them. But if we understand that those are two words that mean destroyer, well, surely we'll find in history somebody that uh, occupied that role. Abaddon is the Hebrew word for destroyer, and Apollyon is the Greek word. They both mean destroyer. In Revelation chapter 11, we are talking there about the French Revolution, and uh, of course Paris being the capital of France, and it says that all this took place in a city that was called Sodom, Egypt, and Jerusalem. Well, how could you have one place literally that would have those three names? You, you can see that that doesn't add up. But it makes perfect sense if you understand that France at that time was mimicking Sodom in its licentiousness, its immorality. It was mimicking Egypt in its godlessness and its atheism. And it was mimicking Jerusalem because that's where Jesus was crucified. And Jesus was being crucified in the person of his saints during that time. So it makes sense if you look at it that way. And of course, you have the, uh, Babylon, which we said there was no literal Babylon at that time. And in Revelation 20, of Gog and Magog, and that needs to be understood in the same way. Read Ezekiel 38 and 39 if you wonder what Gog and Magog is all about. So we're going to take a look now at the terms that are in our text. And we're, our first stop here is this, is this word waters. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Its water was dried up. So in the Bible, here's probably a text that many of you have read before or heard quoted before. But we're going to take a closer look at it tonight. The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Have you ever heard that text quoted before? Many times, right? Well, let's take a, a little bit closer look at it. It's the waters, that, uh, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits. Water, understanding waters representing multitudes uh, could be waters, uh, any lake or pond or or ocean, or whatever. But that's not what Revelation 17 is talking about. It's specifically talking about certain waters where the harlot sits. Well, who's the harlot in the book of Revelation? It's Babylon, right? And what was the waters that pertained to and flowed through Babylon? The river Euphrates. Uh, Revelation 17:1. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. On her forehead, her name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. So, when we read it in uh, Revelation 16, 12, that the angel poured its water out of the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up, it's speaking about people, but it's a little bit more specific than that. It's speaking about the waters of Babylon. That is what Euphrates are. So it's talking about the multitudes who support the false religious system that will be formed at the end. Babylon at the end will be comprised, as we'll see tomorrow afternoon, of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And the kings of the earth that uh, join with them, that is what makes up Babylon uh, at the very end of time. Now, when it talks about waters, you could think of it as being waters, uh, you know, a placid lake. A, 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 you know, when the explorers first came to the West Coast, they saw the mighty Pacific. Why'd they give it that name? Why'd they call it Pacific? Because it, it, looks, it looks serene and calm. That's what Pacific means. The waters that we're talking about here are not that kind of waters. It's talking about the, first of all, it's talking about the river Euphrates. And what we need to see is that these are multitudes, peoples, and so on, supporting Babylon, and they are raging. They are rushing waters, not calm, still waters. 
like you read in Psalm 23. No, these are raging, rushing waters bent on destruction. Remember again what we read in Great Controversy about uh, the throngs of multitudes coming to attack the righteous. So let's take a look at some uh, texts here from the Bible. Uh, let's take a look at Isaiah 8, 6 to 8. We won't be able to take a look at all these, but um, we'll take a look at some. Isaiah 8, 6 to 8. The Lord spoke to me again, that's verse 5, saying, Inasmuch as these people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in resin and in Ramalia's son, now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river. Anybody have a note in their Bible to explain what it's talking about when it says the river? What does it say? Euphrates. Usually in the Bible, when it just says the river, it means the Euphrates. So the Lord is going to bring up over these people the waters of the river, strong and mighty. And translation, what does that mean? The king of Assyria and all his glory, he will go up over his channels, he will go all over his banks, pass through Judah, and so on. So the river Euphrates is likened to a raging army, overflowing, destroying. That's what it's saying in Isaiah 8. Now, chapter 17 of Isaiah uh, in fact, the, the next couple, but especially 17, 12, and 13. If you had only a couple Bible verses to be able to compare Revelation 16, 12 with, what is it talking about when it says the waters of the Euphrates and them being dried up? Isaiah 17, 12, and 13. It's got to be the, the key text here. 17, 12. Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas, and to the rushing of nations, notice how the repetition of the word rushing here, that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but, that's a turning point word in English, isn't it? That means whatever happened before, you can forget about because something different is going to happen now. But God will rebuke them. This is Revelation 16, 12. You have the mighty waters of the Euphrates, that is the multitudes in support of Babylon, rushing to attack the righteous, but God will rebuke them and they will flee far away. We'll come back to some of these words later because they're really, really key words, but that's, that's a fantastic passage. Uh, look at Isaiah 28, verse 2. Twenty-eight two. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail, like a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. Now take a look at 59.19. This is a very, very important one. 59.19. Not a long verse, at least the part that we're going to look at at the, at the end of the verse, but it's really, really potent with, with meaning. Uh, the verse starts out by saying, So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. Then we come to this last part. When the enemy comes in like a what? Like a flood, rushing water. When the enemy comes in like a flood, then the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Now, I'm going to pause here for a second. I may have uh, discussed things like this with you before, but you know if you have one of these things, it's amazing what you can discover concerning Bible words. You don't have to know the original language in order to do really, really interesting research. Uh, would you believe that when it says the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him, the verb there, lift up a standard, 
is the very same um, verb that we just read there in Isaiah 17, 12, and 13 when it says the Lord will rebuke them and they will flee far away. Same word. In other words, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will cause him to flee. We just read that in Great Controversy, what's going to happen. Well, we have some other texts. We're not going to take time to look at the ones in Jeremiah. They're very, very good. But I do want uh, to turn to that one in Revelation. This is a story that probably you're familiar with in chapter 12. Verse 15, again, the images, rushing waters are, are representative of armies on the march bent to kill and destroy. Verse 15 of 12, the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. That he, might ca- that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. That represents the, the armies of those forces that were in support of the middle-aged church that were trying to destroy those who were, were, wanted to follow God. But the earth helped the woman, and so on. So, uh, we see that waters in the Bible, especially Revelation, they mean multitudes, peoples, but particularly that they are the waters in support of Babylon, and particularly, they are waters that are in movement. They are rushing, raging waters trying to destroy. Now, interestingly, the very name of the river Euphrates fits into this. We're taking a look at the meaning of the word Euphrates. We find that it comes from the, the root peretz, uh, which is the very same uh, root as the word Persian, and as the, as the word Eupharsin. Remember in Daniel 5, mini, mini, tekel, Eupharsin? It means breaking breaking forth. And uh, let's take a look quickly at these two that we have there. Second Samuel 5.20 uh, is, a, is a really neat one. This is a story about David fighting the Philistines. Second Samuel 5.20, we're looking at this verse to see the root of the word Euphrates, which means to break forth or to rush against. 2 Samuel 5.20, David went to Baal-perazim. It it mentions that, but it's actually not given the name until afterward, but it mentions it. David went to Baal-perazim, and David defeated the Philistines there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me, like a breakthrough of waters. Therefore, he called the name of the place Baal-perazim. It was given that name. The Lord breaks, breaks through, breaks upon my enemies, like a rushing of waters. And uh, going to this one in Genesis 38, just take a look at that one very quickly. This has to do with the birth of the twins, 38, 38, 29, it happened that as he, the first one, remember the, the, there were twins in uh, Tamar's womb, and the first one put his hand out, she tied a scarlet thread around him, saying this, this is the first one. But it happened, he drew back his hand, and his brother came out unexpectedly, and so she said, how did you break through? This is that same root that forms the word Euphrates, to break through. This breach, or this breaking, be upon you, and so his name was called Perez. It's all that same root of Persian, Perez, Upharsin, and Euphrates. It has to do with breaking forth or rushing, rushing upon. Now, we find many stories in the Bible that bring this point out. The very first episode 
uh, is, of course, the story of Cain and Abel. Cain rose up against his brother, Abel. The issue was worship. Hatred and fury came out, and death was the result for poor Abel. And it's going to be amazing when the Lord brings him back to life, and uh, there'll be nearly 6,000 years that he's been at rest. And try to imagine him seeing what has happened. Acts 7.57 is the story of Stephen. And it says that when he gave his testimony, Acts 7, then they cried out with a loud voice, they stopped their ears and they ran at him or rushed upon him with one accord. What happened to Stephen at that point is an illustration of what's going to be attempted to take place against the righteous at the end. They're going to give their testimony, just like Stephen did, and it's going to enrage the wicked so much that they're going to stop their ears and they're going to rush upon the righteous. But God is going to intervene. That's what verse 12 is saying. Uh, in Acts 19 and 21, there are similar stories talking about how the wicked rush upon uh, Paul and others. So that's, that's the, the uh, imagery. Go back to what Sister White describes there. With shouts of triumph, jeering, and imprecation, throngs of evil men are about to rush upon their prey when lo, a dense blackness, deeper than the darkness of night, falls upon the earth, and they are stopped. Okay? So if rushing waters symbolize the assault of armies, what would the drying up of those waters represent? Them being stopped, right? Or as, as Sister White said, they are arrested. The waters of Babylon, the rushing river trying to destroy the righteous, will be dried up. That's the, the meaning of that. Go back to what we read in uh, Isaiah 17. Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of seas, the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of many waters. Nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but God will rebuke them and they will flee. And there's the Hebrew word there. They will flee, noose, far away. That's the very same word that we find in Isaiah 59. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard or cause him to flee. That's the intervention of God. So that, this is what this verse is talking about. When the sixth angel pours out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, its waters were dried up so that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And again, the quote from Sister White. Take a very quick look, our time is escaping, a quick look at five salvation stories in the Old Testament that deal with water being dried up. We want to catch that image in our mind. When it says water's dried up, we can think of stories where that had direct bearing on God's people being saved. Genesis 8, what's the context there? It's right after the flood. And uh, after that world destruction, uh, the Bible says that God sent a mighty wind and caused the earth to be dried up. So there was a drying up of the water, which had to take place after the flood in order for mankind to exist. And that was a salvation incident. Psalm 104 comments on that as well. What's happening in Exodus 14? People have just left Egypt, and they're partway out, uh, and now they come to the Red Sea, and there are mountains on both sides of them, and then what do they see coming up behind them? There comes Pharaoh and his armies. He's reconsidered. He's had buyer's remorse. He said, why did I let them go? I'm going to go get them again so they can continue building my, my pyramids and other stuff. So he comes up from behind, and they're trapped now. The Israelites are trapped between the mountains and the sea in front. What are they, what's, God, what's God going to do? He dries up the water. 
and that brings salvation to God's people. So when it says waters are dried up, in our minds, knowing the stories of the past, we realize that God's trying to say this is a redemption event. This is salvation. In Joshua 3, uh, there again we have after the 40 years of wandering, they approach waters. It's, this, it's the Jordan River this time. And what happens as they get ready to go across? The Lord causes a way to open, and they march through as upon dry ground. 2 Kings 2.8, kind of a similar story, but it's uh, many centuries later, Elijah is there. Think of these two stories here. Israel entering Canaan. What is Canaan a symbol of? It's the heavenly promised land, isn't it? And Elijah is now going to cross the Jordan, and he's going to go to the promised land now. And what has to happen before he can do that? He takes his cloak down and he smites, and what happens to the water? They are parted, they are separated, they are dried up, and Elijah goes to heaven. That's, that, that's what's going to happen to God's people. The waters are going to be dried up, and we're going to ride that chariot in the sky, right? May that happen soon. Now, the fifth story is so rich, we're just going to mention it. We're going to talk about it more tomorrow. And as strange as it might sound to you for me to say this, all that we've studied so far is absolutely relevant, but it doesn't compare with the beauty and, and the concise way that it fits together like the story of Cyrus. This is the granddaddy of them all. If you're going to understand Revelation 16, 12, you have to know about Cyrus. He dried up the literal uh, Euphrates River in order to bring salvation to God's people. Uh, we, we don't have time to get into it too much tonight. We'll talk more about it tomorrow morning in church. Now, think for just a minute, uh, what was it that causes the waters to be dried up? Well, we find that there are three things that we can look at in Scripture that tell us what this drying up, this, this removal of the threat of Babylon's forces against God's people. What really causes that? First is that Babylon, at the end, self-destructs. Self-destructs. And secondly, there's the intervention of God's Spirit. And by the way, when we talked about those five stories of the waters drying up, the first two of those involved that. In Genesis 8, it says the Lord sent a mighty wind. Wind, that represents God's Spirit. And uh, at the time of... Um, when they, were, when they were at the Red Sea, the same thing. It says the Lord caused a great wind from the east to come that brought about the Red Sea parting. So the intervention of God's Spirit, what does that mean? Uh, that means that as the forces of Babylon begin to attack or think to attack God's people, he's going to intervene and, and stop that, and the, and the weapons are going to be powerless. And then the third thing will be the actual coming of Jesus that will put it to an end. And we're going to read a quote here from Sister White where, where, uh, where especially those last two things are, are made very, very clear. So going back to the first one, the Babylon, Babylon self-destructs. In chapter 17 of Revelation, we have a description of that. In verse uh, 16 of Revelation 17, it says, The ten horns which you saw, the ten horns represent the forces of the earth that are collaborating with Babylon. It says... Uh, uh, verse 16, the ten horns that you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot. They had been working together. They were in alliance. They were collaborating. But now things are changed. They've turned. These will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Now, we're going to read a quote in a minute, uh, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll wait to read that before I make any more comments. They will... 
Let's let, take a look very briefly. We can't even look these all up, but I'll refer, refer you to them. In Judges chapter 7, we have the tremendous story of Gideon with his, uh, with his small, at first, uh, force of 300. Uh, anybody know how many they were up against? What were the, what were the uh, uh, numbers of the Amalekites at that time? Well, you have to do a little bit of math, but it ends up being 135,000. And at first he had 32,000, and the Lord said, that's too many. And so it was taken down to 10,000, and Gideon's heart sank. The Lord said, you got too many. You'll, if I give you the victory, you'll take credit. No, we got to do something else. So it was now down to 300. Is God uh, hindered by the fact that there are only a few on his team? Not at all. Gideon's 300, they won a great victory against uh, the 135,000. But as part of that victory, when the, remember they had the, the, uh, the, the clay vessels and the torches inside, and when the vessels were broken, the light shone, and they cried out, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and it threw the enemy into a panic, and they began to kill themselves. That's what the Bible says. Now, there's many, many stories. We only have a couple on the screen here. It's told in story as well as prophecy, that at the end, those that had been working under the alliance of Babylon, that, that the cement will fail, and they'll turn against each other. It's very, very sad. It's not what God wants, but it is what, what will happen. In 1 Samuel 14, you have the marvelous victory of Jonathan and his armor bearer. Same thing. As they uh, uh, go and they show themselves to the Philistines, they, they, uh, they are successful in a small skirmish, but the next thing you know, they're all fighting amongst each other, and, and the, uh, the threat is removed. Second Chronicles 20, same story. You can uh, look these up and read, read them. Now, it's told in story as well as prophecy, and uh, we're not going to take time to read all of these, but it's very, very clear that uh, the Bible is telling us that those that are working on Satan's side will eventually turn against each other. And that's one reason why the threat is removed against God's people, because they realize. Now, uh, here's some more texts on that. But here's what Sister White says. And again, it's, it's so beautiful how her words, as you understand what the Bible has said, her words describe it perfectly. Here's what, uh, what she says in Great Controversy. The people see that they have been deluded. They accuse one another of having led them to destruction but all unite in heaping their bitterest condemnation upon the ministers. Unfaithful pastors have prophesied smooth things. They have led their hearers to make void the law of God and to persecute those who would keep it holy. Now, in their despair, these teachers confess before the world their work of deception. The multitudes are filled with fury. We are lost, they cry, and you are the cause of our ruin. And they turn upon the false shepherds. The very ones that once mired them most will pronounce the most dreadful curses upon them. The very hands that once crowned them with laurels will be raised for their destruction. Now notice, the swords which were to slay God's people are now employed to destroy their enemies everywhere there is strife and bloodshed. Babylon self-destructs. The kings of the earth hate the harlot. That's what that is telling us. So going back to our text, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, its water was dried up so that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Armageddon is the last segment of this battle between Satan and Christ, and it was not limited to one little tiny area in Palestine. 
It's wherever there are people who, want, who, who need to make a choice, whether to be on God's team or on Satan's team. What's the problem with the literal interpretation of a battle in Palestine? It misses the great issues that, that the Bible wants to bring about, which is about loyalty to God, honoring his commandments, being faithful to his, to his kingdom. Now, tomorrow we'll take a look at, uh, at Cyrus and uh, why he is such an unbelievable, a remarkable uh, type of Christ in so many ways. So that's going to be for church. We'll, we'll have uh, first service and second service. We'll be the same presentation we're going to take a look at eight different titles that Cyrus has in the Bible that all reflect, one way or another, Jesus and his mission. It's an amazing, an amazing thing. Then tomorrow afternoon, we're going to take a look at the, the three frog-like spirits that it mentions in that passage. And then later tomorrow afternoon, at 3.30 or so, we'll take a look at the Battle of Armageddon itself. But uh, I want to leave you uh, with an appeal that each one of us make sure of our salvation, make sure we're on God's team. We're heading into momentous times. I think that 2017 could be quite a year. I mean, you can't hardly turn the news on today without seeing something that's happening almost every day that tells you we're near the end. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So I want to appeal to you to make Christ your Savior, Recommit your life to Him. Look for ways to share the gospel with others and be ready. Because in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. Jesus wants us to be ready. He wants us to be in that cloud that rises to heaven and uh, takes us home safely. And that is my prayer for each one of us here in this room tonight. May God bless you as we uh, continue our study tomorrow. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, what a blessing it is to be able to take the Bible and use it as the dictionary to be able to understand the terms that you have put there. Lord, we want to be your servants. We want to be ones that you disclose your truth to and not hide it. We want to commit ourselves to you so that you can use us to reflect your character, to share your good news with others, and in some small way, help somebody else find their way to the kingdom. May this be true for every single one of us tonight. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We'll see you tomorrow morning.